Right, uh, first of all, I'll start with an apology for only being Colin McKay, because you were promised two, you promised myself and my colleague Sean Mac. Also, um, that has meant a very radical change in what I'm going to talk about, because um, the other paper's going to be very statistically driven, and that's Sean's bag, really. <laughs> I didn't really, you, you wouldn't really have thanked me for um, trying to analyse social capital through regression analysis statistics. But what I have what I have agreed to do at the level, well decided to do last night when I heard that Sean wasn't able to come was to bring back go back to some of the research I've been doing on access agreements. Uh, and it's it's basically combined two previous pieces of work that I've done. One looking at the content of access agreements and one looking at the actual discourse. There we go. What are access agreements? For those who don't know, um, they were established by the Higher Education Act 2004. They're agreements that institutions have to sign off and agree with the Office of Fair Access. Um, this, the Office of Fair Access was set up during the passage of the 2004 Act. Um, the 2004 Act was designed really to allow for the increase in tuition fees from 1,000 to 3,000 variable fees. There was concern, uh, particularly on the labour backbenches at the time, about protecting access within fees rocketing or trebling at the time. And uh, the Office of Fair Access was kind of a bit of a political um, solution to the problem of how, how can institutions, or how can we ensure that access for the poorest and other represented groups be um, protected. So therefore, these agreements um, were, had to be, like I say, had to be designed and had to be signed off by the Office of Fair Access to allow the institutions to charge above £1,000. And what they do, they talk about the financial support that uh, will be offered to the poorest students. They also talk about outreach priorities, what sort of groups that the institutions are going to um, target their outreach on. So they're, they're quite good, they're policy statements rather than marketing activities, but they do contain a lot of very interesting content around about who, who, they're, who they're actually looking to recruit into the institution. Um, and I was attracted into this work because of 2004, 2005, Hefke done the first evaluation of AIM Hire and uh, our research centre at Sheffield Hound was involved in this. We did a survey of um, educational providers look, asking about their WP activities and priorities, and particularly about their AIM Hire activities and priorities. It became quite clear there was quite different sort of activities going on, different types of interventions were favoured by either part of the sector. So when Access Greens came out, I thought well, these are really good opportunity to trace this policy change or look at the different types of institutional um, agreements that there are to see if, if this kind of apparent um, different act, different way of doing WP, if you like, was going to be continued with access agreements. <coughs> so the, the main thing to say about access agreements, they don't have actually have any influence on admissions to HE, but it's really about encouraging applications. 
they're not the offer itself doesn't have any particularly strong policy teeth if you like but it does act as a kind of encourager it does it does hold institutions to account in the sense that they, they do have to spend a proportion of the money over and above the, the basic fee and they do have to set targets about what they're going to try and do and, and this information that they lay out there you've got a good picture of what they try and do from 2012 when the new tuition fee regime came in there was new guidance for the access agreements there was more emphasis on the benchmarking um, and particularly for post 92s those that had already had a, a pretty good record on access but at higher uh, dropout rates for example there were new targets for retention and success so there was much more emphasis in employability and if you remember at the time as students at the heart of the system a lot of the similar language going on about that so access agreements are you very useful in that they reflect and you can be seen responding to government policy they're the way that we can see our institutions respond to the sort of ongoing marxization of our system and obviously the policy context of this just to, just to remind us if anyone can forget <laughs> so then at the end of a fairly long period of systemic growth around about 2009 on the back of the financial crash a cap was introduced then um, then we had the election of the coalition government in 2010 obviously there's a big cuts agenda um, students at the heart system in 2011 very pro-market orientated policy <coughs> There was the, the next hike in the fees, another trebling in the fees up to 9,000, shifted that from the uh, state directly funded universities to uh, universities being funded by the individual, undercut, underpinned still by the state. Uh, there was also the student number control policy of high grades, which was designed by uh, FG and BIS to try and create a differential so that only certain institutions have the higher, charge the highest fees. Um, and that there was supposed to be a lot more targeting of attracting the brightest students to the to the institutions at the top end of the distribution if you like and at the same time the national scholarship program was launched that a bit like when the offer was set up in 2004 that was in response to political worries about access if you remember um, the Lib Dems that was the Lib Dems um, that was the way that the Lib Dems were how to say this? It, it's a way of keeping Lib Dems on site for the, the rising tuition fees, which is obviously politically high uh, at time. So, the lot bit here about the National Scholarship Programme, a very short lived and unlamented programme. It's been in goal in two years, but uh, the reason I bring it up is access agreements contain the detail of how that, how it operate. And again, there's, there's uh, indications in there about who, who, how they would target outreach and who won and to what, to what extent the money um, who was getting supported by the money and it's all again the wider context of this general student as consumer model based on informed choice <coughs> so what else is going on well mandatory bursaries were scrapped when offer was first set up one of the core parts of it was that every student from a household income below 25,000 uh, would get a £300 bursary. Um, but actually, the Brown Review, the, just before the election, the Brown Review, 85, Brown actually recommended getting rid of offer completely 
and definitely get in the middle of a bursary. They wanted the institutes to be freed up to target this money as and when, not have to support every poor student. Now, as it happened, the government decided to keep access agreements and keep offer because that would be a useful vehicle for where the fees would be laid out and outreach and so on. So they kind of ignored that part of Brown but kept offer, which was interesting for my point of view because keeps me in my research interest. <laughs> so, but institutions were free, free to target support, although the National Scholarship Programme, as I say, was added to the mix. Um, it's slightly a one because it wasn't really national and it wasn't really a programme, but apart from that, and it wasn't really about scholarships. Um, and one of the issues with it was it was allocated by student numbers rather than by need. So, for example, at Sheffield Hall, I think we had 180 uh, National Scholarship Programme um, awards, and the University of Sheffield had almost exactly the same because we've got very similar student numbers. But in terms of need, I students below, or applicants coming in from incomes below 25,000, there was actually a big difference, <laughs> and that, that was one of the issues with it. Uh, NSP awards were quite large in the sense of £3,000, but it was only for the first year and only £1,000 it could be a cash bursary. Institutions also had to match fund it, so, and so they, could, they had the choice whether to support more students for the same money or support double amount of students uh, more generously. And, there, and the, the, yes, it's right from the beginning it was about targeting the bright potential students from poor backgrounds. So again, the Mavs is shifting away from support for all. So it's just on the brightest. So how do we widen participation this given this new regime? How to protect access for the poorest? Well, the repayment scheme, as you know, has, has made more progressive and numbers have more or less kept up. In fact, numbers of people from the poorest background haven't actually uh, declined. Offer guidance, though, as I say, do indicate that we, we, it's all about support, so how do we identify the brightest of the poor? So what I'm going to talk about today really is this comparative content analysis for 20 access agreements. In 2006, original access agreements, that was the first year of operation. And 2012, the start of the new regime, if you like. And the, the initial sample was 10 recruiting universities at post 19s if you like and 10 selecting universities pre-19s and now I sort of drew this sample up on me on my own at a desk back in 2000, 2005 six. Um, and I've done, I've done some comparative analysis again it kind of replicated what we found out with the HEFCV there was this different kind of um, WP going on but under the new regime I went back to those same 10 institutions looked at the a new um, linear access agreements and um, looking at the change over time so you've got how those institutions change their approach but also the relationship between the two institution types so we've got a sort of full, uh, full way analysis and again it's looking at what is what underrepresented groups institutions offer financial support to so look major eight different age groups that they target and um, say different social groups how much kind of financial support was there? So the focus really is the variations by time and movement over time. <coughs> so as I've already said this, and I said it's about engagement with different age groups, 
in different unrepresented groups, financial support. And then when we look at the 2012 groups, you definitely see a distortion impact on the National Scholarship Programme money. Talk about that a bit more as we come to it. Okay, the first, the first chart, age group engagement. As you can see, uh, the ones in blue are pre-92. So four of the 10 of my sample pre-92 focused on the primary age group. This data comes from a close reading of the, the documents where the survivor said in the text that they will target the, um, the particularly interested in the primary age group or they've actually listed the types of um, hours that they do and that they are specifically a target group. You'll see that um, primaries are more interest to pre-92. Secondary, as, as you'd imagine, all 10 of both, both groups are doing. 16 to 18, most of the pre-92s and all of the post-92s were focusing on. 16 to 19, that's kind of a funny group, but you did used to see it a lot in the policy literature. I think it was designed to pick up those who are, um, obviously hadn't already decided at year, year 11, 12 to go into university, maybe gone into further education. There was a lot of outreach back in 2006 more so, a lot of outreach going on in colleges, trying to pick up those kind of, that kind of group. Mature students, that was more prevalent amongst post-92s. Not many uh, pre-92s were involved in this group. But when we look at the age group engagement for 2012, see the primaries shot right up for the both. So now nine pre-92s are actually looking more at um, primary age group. Some more of the post-92s. Getting fairly blanket coverage for the um, secondary age group in 16 to 18. 1619 numbers have gone down a bit. You can see there. Mature students, interestingly, pre-92s weren't that bothered. Only four of them engaged with uh, mature students in, in 26. As many as um, as many pre-92s interested in mature students as there before. So that's quite interesting. If you look at the the pattern of how the overall change altogether. The blue and the green are pre-92s, those columns, I hope you, none of these colour lines in it. Um, the red and the purple being the post-92s, you see, you see a large increase in the emphasis on primary, um, but also a large increase in the emphasis on matures, which is perhaps potentially counterintuitive. You see the falling off of 16 to 19 year olds, even though it's post-92s, nine of them down to eight mention that, that group. And, and the, amongst the uh, pre-90s of Louisville, that they've dropped down on 16 to 19, so they're kind of dropping off the agenda. So we can perhaps speculate about some of the things going on there later on. But interestingly, both types of institution are focusing on more, more age groups now. So there's far more on primary, less than 16 to 19. What you see is post-90s in some ways acting a little bit more like pre-92s. It's almost as if there's already an awareness that among the post-92s that in their, the way they write these agreements, in the way that they portray themselves um, in terms of access, is trying to act a bit more like pre-92s. Although it's reversed for mature students, quite interesting. But it does suggest that both types of group are now focusing more on high attainers, particularly this this additional focus on the primary age group where you can identify uh, the brightest student early doors and don't forget that is one of the largest um, aspects of the marketisation and targeting. 
Now, our second uh, aspect to this is um, engagement with various underrepresented <laughs> social groups. The groups of field analysis here, black minority ethnic, asylum seekers, refugees, which you can see up on the table, they drop off completely, that's because of a change in the law, they're no longer allowed to go to university, but they were in 2006. Uh, disabled, uh, looked after children, now you see, people from lower socioeconomic class, people from people living in low participation neighbourhoods, and then there was that engagement that was focused on parents and careers, uh, carers, and then there was engagement which specifically talked about work-based learning. So don't worry too much about the numbers except for the totals on the right hand side. This is the amount of time where those social groups are mentioned in agreements amongst the 10. So amongst 10 pre-2006, pre-92-06 agreements, 41 groups are mentioned, but by 2012 there, there's 53 mentions of various different social groups. Amongst the post-92s, there were 37 different groups that were focused on for engagement. <laughs> and that has gone up. So overall, there's a more of an awareness that uh, more of these groups can be targeted. But the patterns are quite interesting. <coughs> Again, the blue and the green are pre-92s and the red and the purple. So both groups, interestingly, far less focus on minority ethnic groups. And there is a bit of a, a bit, we can talk a bit more about that later. Asylum refugee, like I say, that, that stop being an issue because they were no longer allowed to, allowed to go to university. Both categories and much more emphasis on disabled groups. And you can see that um, <coughs> that's shot up, particularly for the pre-92s, all 10 of them mentioned disabled groups. Well, many interesting things might be why they weren't before, I mean, it's quite surprising. Really. Looked after children, you can see there's no blue column only a couple of post 92s really did anything about looked after children in 2006. So, you know, ask <coughs> just, Yes, it was just a clarification. When you say parents carers, <coughs> is that parents carers as potential students or as parents carers of potential students? The latter. Right. Because it's about targeting yeah. intervention. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I'd say only a couple of post 92s had any um, emphasis on looked after children, but by 2012, Nine out of ten in both categories had. So you probably did put that down to the, the Frank Bible Trust and all the good work that they've done. There were some, but they've come from nowhere to be right on an agenda. And this is what makes this sort of policy um, research quite interesting from, that's my background anyway. Analyse policies and seeing the change of where it comes from. So there's something that's really come up. They've obviously been successful lobbying organisations. Bit of an interesting thing when you look at the lowest socioeconomic class, that's just you citing <coughs> low SES data, if you like. Um, it's interesting that the pre 92s is less likely to use it, but have gone down from 8 to 6. Post 92s it's slightly lower, only by 1. If you match that against low participation neighbourhood data, that's being more often cited now, or in the second set of data by both groups. And that probably reflects that. Um, <coughs> When you ask applicants about a low or family socioeconomic data, they don't actually know. He's uh, estimate only 83% of uh, applicants actually know, or they've only got usable data for about 83% of applicants. Whereas low participation neighbour data, LPN data, is known by like something like 99.8. Everyone's got a postcode. So there's a sense that maybe the LPN data 
as well as being a kind of proxy for a low SEC, has just become more easy to, to gather. So that might explain the slight falling off of low SEC data. But notice amongst post, the post 92s, these two columns, post 92s is still high propensity to use it, but also using LPN. The LPN data is, 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 quite, is quite problematic in itself because there's lots of non poor people living in low participant participation neighborhoods. So it's got its own problems, but it's very interesting <coughs> to see that perhaps for administrative efficiency purposes, LPN is now something that they will, they will talk about. You'll see that word coming up all the time as a way that we, we carefully target. We use LPN. Less, less people mentioning class data, but now to the LPN. So that's, that's of interest. The parents' carers, that hasn't moved massively, without a couple more um, pre-92s are involved. Work-based learning was never a major um, thing, if you like, for pre-92s, given the selective nature. But post-92s are getting involved with that sort of thing less as well. So we can say, in a sense, there's a bit of catch-up by pre-92s. You can see the pre-92 columns growing. And that's almost like, by the 2012, by the 2006 agreements, it's almost like access, WP, wasn't so much a big part of their day-to-day -day business case. It wasn't all that important uh, in sense of uh, income from the government or for that matter from the, from the kind of students they recruit. But you did see that some of those um, Manhattans, if you like, going up on the pre-92 side. So you can see it in terms of LAC, you can see it in terms of LPN, and much more reference to parents' care. Benchmark, in effect, perhaps post-92s generally overachieve against some of those um, Benchmarks anyway, they're benchmarks on things like uh, BME groups and people from poor backgrounds. Post-92 is more like to be in an urban uh, scenario, more like to have a higher, higher ratio. They were all kind of already reaching those benchmarks anyway. Didn't have as much growth to make, whereas pre-92s were playing a bit of catch-up. The overall decline in engagement with BME Okay, some of those groups aren't actually underrepresented, and in 2007, the FQ actually put out a targeting guidelines saying you don't just blanket all BME groups, that's not an efficient use of resource. So be a bit more selective, but on the also, as a sense that the poorer BME groups will get picked up by the Amtisong um, LPN or, or low socioeconomic class. So that, that appears to partly explain that. But whereas Previously, there was a kind of, ah, oh, all BME groups are deserving cause, let's throw money at, you know, let's put the resource there. And it seems to be a bit more sophisticated, perhaps reflecting the, more, the new emphasis on targeting. Uh, but there's definitely more focus on socioeconomic indicators, whether it's LPN ones or, or good old-fashioned social class. I've noticed in the last couple of years, it was far more talk about um, free school meal data. You start to see that in biz and... FU documents now, which I think is is a partly reflection of the fact that LPN data is I'm accepting not to be all that all that accurate. <coughs> but again, it's another proxy for poor students, if you like. So that's what we've seen. Then we've seen a pre nineties getting more into the game, and we'll see a bit of this when we look at the discourses as well. Uh, they're starting to take access a lot more seriously. 
Whereas for W, uh, for post IT universities, it's been part of the raison d'etre, as one of them actually put it. Financial support, well, <coughs> murky waters, I'm afraid, but we're going to have to go there. <coughs> National scholarship program. So, again, if you want to charge over the additional, well, additional fee income, if you, had to, if you wanted to charge above, above the, the basic fee, which is now 6,000, all institutions had to sign up to the National Scholarship Programme. Uh, and that had to be, any, any, anyone, there was national eligibility uh, criteria, a residual household income of minus 25,000. As I said, the awards were 3,000, but it was all paid out in year one, and only one grand of it could be cashed. The rest would, could be a combination of fee waivers and services. And the, the universities had to match fund that with a similar amount of money, and that that could actually be spread over three years. So it's a very very diverse um, set of criteria, and of course, if you had a lot more poor students than you had allocated to NSP, then you had to have additional eligibility criteria to filter that. And that's that, looking at that's quite interesting. I say the main issue is that two two universities in one city with one might have three hundred poor students and they get an allocation of two fifty, another one's got two thousand poor students and they get an allocation two fifty. So it's how to deal with that. <coughs> that was actually corrected after the first year. But one of the things that was because that data is in there and I was analysing the content uh, was what what was the um, distribution of what they could offer, and only half half of the pre night teams actually offered the first three, but nearly all of them offered a fee waiver. Um, Post-92s always go, go the, the, the least, well, 9 out of 10 actually said you could have the £1,000. So, interesting about pre-92s, even though they could go up to a £1,000 bursary, they, they didn't. But they, they all sort of went for the fee waivers. Uh, Post-92s are more likely to offer services, or this combination of bursary, fee waiver, and certain Discounted services. And the matchbook funding element is quite interesting as well. How the money was spent. Amongst pre 92s, 5 out of 10 doubled the value of the award. That meant where you could give £3,000 to just these couple of hundred students. You've got the choice whether you give that, make that 6000 award, or make it 3000 award to double the amount of people. But actually, pre 92s are more likely to double the value of the award. And I'd say that's probably because it didn't have that many that met the criteria anyway. Um, and only one post 92 did that, but five post 92s actually doubled the allocation. And, and a couple more actually more than doubled the allocation so that they could spread the money thinner amongst the poor student, poorer students. So pre 92s targeting at the few, the post 92s were supporting more of the poorer cohort, but with less money. And the type of eligibility criteria, I say there's all these secondary eligibility criteria by institution types. There's far more of them used by post-92s, again that reflects the, the fact that more or less students fit into that category. And there's 19 different um, um, instances where they would um, there was based on need uh, amongst post-92s, but still five actually on merit. So you see post-92s actually saying, yes, well, we've got this extra money, but we'll, we'll do it based on merit rather than need. Um, Pre-92s, uh, there were seven schemes that were about um, 
need as well. Um, the course uh, reflects to course the subject sh shortages within the institution. A local is, is where eligibility was criteria is whether you know if there's a partnership agreement or compact between local schools and colleges. <coughs> so this, that's that's the kind of picture on the NSP, but it did kind of reflect. Uh, like I say, this huge imbalance in that some institutes have up to a couple of thousand poorer students. But, but they did actually correct that after the first year of the NSP, the evaluation of it sort of got through to Hefke and they actually, then after that they allocated much more needs, so the numbers weren't the same. And after, after that they just completely dropped it and turned it into a totally different scheme. So I only mentioned it in passing as an aspect of all the additional financial support. If you remember, under offer, originally there was these fixed bursaries. So there's plenty of money being used to support students above NSP. And in 2006, the pre-92s were spending more uh, on bursaries and scholarships than post-92s, as you expect, on less recipients. <coughs> but in 2012, access agreements, the same, there's the same pattern. There's actually less support for the poorest in post-92s except for those on receipt of an award. Under the old regime, as I say, everyone receives at least £300 a year. On average, actually, pre-92s they were getting £1,625 a year, uh, and post-92s were getting, on, a, on average, £865. Since every student below 25 k was getting that kind of support. And although these are the numbers for my sample, two samples of 10, and Claire Cameron did some analysis around about the time 2008-9 and that pretty much matched the, the national data set. <coughs> but by the, 2012, by the time of the 2012 regime, eight of the ten pre-92s show that um, this additional financial support is available to all students that qualify. And the maximum support can be quite generous between 2,000 and up to 5,500 in some cases, depending on um, whether you qualify for more than one scholarship or if you're doing a short subject and you're from disabled background, you can, you can get multiple support. You can get up to 5,500 at some institutions. So support for all those people meeting the cutoff actually increased for all eight, for eight out of these ten pre-90s. On average, it's a net gain of £1,125 a year for the students, all students at pre 90 but post-19s, the picture is actually quite different. None of, none of my staff of 10 were able to offer basic financial support for all students that qualify RHI. So there's evidence here that the money being diverted into match funding the National Scholarship Programme actually has left a lot of poorer students actually with no money at all, no financial support at all. Bearing in mind that they were on at least 300 quid and in reality around about 800 quid. So there's actually far less support going to poor students at post 92 institutions. And that's voluntary. Universities didn't have to play it that way. So, you know, anyway, signal. So there we go. Poor students more heavily supported pre 92s. And it's been distorted, distorted it. Yeah, it's more or less all been covered, isn't it? 
Okay, so having spent quite a, a couple of years really analysing this content, because I'm, I'm a sad, you know, political science background, I, I, like, I love analysing policy, that's what I do, I'm not as interested in the impact on people, but <laughs> this is the kind of work that I do. And I thought, well, you know, now we've broken, we, we strip these agreements down, so <laughs> look at their content, but whenever you read, they're not long, sophisticated documents full of um, advertising and like that. They're very straightforward documents. And when you, re you read them, you do find there's a lot of phrases coming up and again. So I thought I wanted to um, take a different approach, actually analyse the discourse to use, actually look at the words, look at the shifting patterns in the, in the way you use words. And going back to Fairclough, he, he, at the time of the, um, the 1992 um, Berwyn Higher Education Act, when Polytechnics were allowed to become universities. He looked at the different ways, the different, this is when the, you know, the two types of universities came together. He looked at the different ways that both types used advertising, in this case, job adverts, to um, look at the way that uh, the modes of action and the kind of, the kind of language that different institution types would, as a kind of positioning, you know, set, set themselves up as different different types of bodies, and Bernstein used, talks about classification um, used here to differentiate um, institutional types. So this notion of world-class universities is the capturing of the, the certain discourse by certain types of institutions. So you could have a, an access university area or a diverse institution. We are this, we are the local welcome friendly university, we are the world-class university. You can, you can set yourself up with these kind of um, Images, if you like, which Ball noticed and um, talked about um, social appropriation of discourses by different institutions. <coughs> you can see it right across the board, but in, particularly in Hei Chi, Gibson Knapp, Martin theorised that were Martin of Hei Chi, talk about choice sets. So you can be in a choice set, and if you're one of the prestigious choice set, of course you want to play that up, and you don't want to prevent being in that. But as I say, there's other choice sets, there are access to assess or uh, being very, you know, vocationally, uh, you know, big on vocational and links um, to labour market, you know. So what I want to do for the discourse is look to see if institutions are actually going to try and change the choice set. Because the key thing about choice sets, potentially you can move from one to the other. So if you want to go from being near Bogstown, the middle of the road, uh, post-92, to being getting in the top, top 50, and incidentally is about 80, Universities trying to get in the top 50 as we speak, if you believe what they say, then this shifting of the choice set is, is something you're going to be looking out for and see if, if institutions are generally moving in a, in a direction that policy would ask them to do because it's, they're, they're looking for a sort of market differentiation um, and then the idea that there'd be sort of gradual moving up the league table if you possibly could. So again, going back to the same agreement, though this time in our own words, without my, without me sort of working out who's who's looking after this agreement. Like, this is actually in our own statements. Look at the post 92s first. Got some examples of a shift, not necessarily a choice set shift, but it, I think for quite interesting changes in the language that they use. And there definitely seemed to be between 2006 2012 a shift and a focus on the institution to the individual. So, starting on the left, 
We have groundbreaking and distinctive higher education institutions whose vision is to combine academic rigour with vocational relevance, work in partnership with other providers in the public private sector, to make substantial contribution to meeting the higher level knowledge and skills needs of the region. It's about the institution. By 2012, the same institution is talking about unlocking the potential of the individual, organising for the excellent responsiveness of our teaching, research and student support. Um, the university is still committed to part-time vocational and professional education, widening participation, extending edu education opportunities to mature students. So they're still playing on the notion of being the WP institution. But the, the, the front line there being about unlocking the potential of an individual sort of stuck out of it. But also at the bottom they're, they're talking about their um, uh, teaching and research in science, technology, engineering and maths. That's what that might be a sort of indicator they're trying to, that's the kind of quality mark isn't it, being rolled in STEM. Uh, another one, post seven, where they've said on the left, it's all about access, progression, student achievement, are all central to the university's raison d'etre, and how always have been, a teaching-led university with strong commitment to applied research. Universities seem to build a proud record of service, traditional strengths in vocational and professional education. On the right, they're now still talking about the history, but our mission statement reflects the word about creating opportunity for our students to equip them to become highly successful in their chosen field. So again, there's a shift towards, away from what the institution can do to what it can do to the individual. And our focus is on the professions. But again, the, in the other side, there's more talk about vocation and labour markets. Here we're talking about professions. WP, achieve our delivering success for our students. So, the best popular, possible opportunities for our students to succeed. All obviously worthy aims. It just seems to be slight shifting those aims. Here's another post eight. Building on our current strengths, we aim to engage with our students and customers, offer them products, skills, and opportunities. Our current strengths on the left, offer them the products. Uh, also, further down there, we will need to be market sensitive in that location, time, and methods of delivery will reflect and support the needs of our diverse and inclusive community. It's still about <coughs> portraying what the university can do in the local community. And it hopes to liberate the economy and society, um, the, the talents of these graduates. But again, in the same sort of, in the same part of the agreement, this time in 2012 13, valid and relevant to those individual learners. A diverse range of students requiring diverse learning and support structures to suit individual needs and so on. And it's as much more about offering exciting worthwhile student experience so these people gain the right tools to enter the world of work. So again it's gone from being something, the university being something that is, is in the world and it, it, it does something as part of the world to being something which is about enhancing learning opportunities of individuals. Uh, another shift was slightly related to this, you can see in post five, it's a, you could perhaps call it slightly just ramping up the language, but where, where, where there was talk about employment and vocational labour markets, there's a shift now to talking about the professions because that links into all this positive language about uh, social mobility. 
So on the left-hand side, we're proud of our record in wine participation um, and highly, highly socially inclusive student population. Uh, success in graduate employment now. We're an accessible, inspirational learning experience. Our strapline is inspiring tomorrow's professionals. So that's quite a loaded statement, if you like. Again, linking quite quite strongly with this this idea of social mobility into profession. So it's a way of the institution. And again, these are adverts sent out to impress students. These are actually just policy statements about this is what we're going to do now. And I think the shifts are quite interesting. And to achieve this our mission is to live up to our brand promise. We seek to support every student for every stage of a personal student journey. Again, much more about the individual learning experience. Another plug for the professionals at the bottom there. <coughs> Shifting language from diversity to employability. Um, and you can see on the left there, there's all the buzzwords are there. WP in its broadest sense, race, social class, age, gender, sexuality and disability. Relates to the whole student experience range from pre-entry through to progression. And <coughs> the bottom, bottom set, uh, sentence, university has a diverse student population and one of its shared values is respect, respect for diversity among members. So diversity is mentioned twice in, in two sentences there in the bottom part of that paragraph. Um, but by 2012, it's much more focused around the support of starts a local primary school and, and people getting into their chosen professional career. We've still got a long-standing, well-evidenced commitment to widen participation and fire access, but it's it, it's a shorter statement. It's further down. It's a, it's less important than the this comprehensive support um, for primary schools and the chosen professional careers. So, Again, there's a shift there. Think of what you will, I suppose. Another one that's shifted from access retention talk um, to talking about employability. WP has been a leading mission for the university for 15 years, reflecting ongoing strategy for WP, which underpins the corporate plan. By 2012, they'll maintain their commitment to this. And this slightly links a bit about the benchmark thing. The, the fact that most postdocs have already achieved most of their benchmark, it's almost becoming a little bit, yeah, right, we're just mentioning it in passing, we're still doing it. So we'll maintain its commitment. It's not striving for it anymore, because we're overachieving it for 15 years. We'll maintain its commitment. Pardon me. But activity relating to retention, achievement, employability already forms part of our holistic approach to wildland participation. So although they weren't specific, those things weren't specifically mentioned before, they now form part of this new holistic things. And what are they the things that are highlighted for them to do by the offer guidance in 2012, which was do something about your retention, do something about your achievement and employability outcome. So you see them responding to um, policy gender marketisation policy agenda, if you like. <coughs> well, I think this is the last one on post notice here. Just shift in the region and national in terms of the outreach. It'll be interesting to see what people say in relation to their own institutions later on today. About Because there's something we also picked up on some research we did last year on the impact of number control 
HEA and we spoke, um, went to institutions and spoke to lots more talk about um, their marketing, changing institutional marketing area, looking at much more trying to recruit from a broader, broader base, so not just being, uh, not just recruiting from the local area or, or the immediate area, they're actually now talking about, um, as I say on the right here, uh, targeted schools in cities across England whose pupils intake reflects many of the WP target groups. And you're looking at WP students in the immediate locale now, actually looking for that kind of student who's willing to travel further. So the, the, the marketing practices begin to change as well. The shift to the regional, national, uh, to the national. And this is a slight <coughs> harbinger, this one, because it's something that the pre-92s talk about a lot. Post five, they're, they're talking about how they'd always done well in um, recruiting regionally and nationally amongst their groups. So they're kind of meeting their benchmark. Despite sector-wide growth in these areas, further improvement has been achieved and we continue to exceed the <coughs> benchmarks. The scope for further improvement is now more limited. That's the thing you'll look out for. By 2012, we were saying that in 20, 2006. By 2012, it's talking about, uh, it's become, become a major challenge to widen participation um, and onwards up to upper social, social mobility. They're anticipating changes in national funding model which are going to change relative demand for particular programs. They've already decided to review the portfolio and withdraw degree programs that the research suggests will not fare well in the new environment. So this is a, an early example of a post-92 already starting to shift its provision. And again, we found quite a bit of that in the student number control research. So as I say, post-92s, you've got the shifting from the individual, um, from the institution to the individual. All this talk about opportunity, student journeys, from work to the professions, from access and diversity to retention and success, employability, the buzzwords are kind of changing, from widening access to social mobility. And there's already talking challenges, and you get to see a lot more when we look at pre 90s. Uh, pre 90s, there's not a lot, I think, probably in the post 92 statement, it did suggest quite a bit of shifting. That the, it's, it's what we would traditionally, what, what we would look, you know, colloquially talk about in terms of, well, they're trying to move up market, they're trying to get from 70 in the league tables to 55 or whatever. Um, Pre-92s, not moving as much, but there's still some interesting things going on. Uh, one's here saying we'll continue to serve the city and region using our skills and knowledge and drawing our international reputation to promote social and cultural well-being and aid economic growth and regeneration. Um, we'll continue to tr our tradition of making a university education available to the members of the community able to benefit from, and that's the, that's the uh, Robbins principle, that last sentence, if anyone didn't recognise it, which often pops up in these things and doesn't, hasn't really changed. But the same university slightly changed its language, it's now an inspirational student experience at selective leading global universities. So you've got a little bit of, it's the same university, it's not any higher up the detail. I shouldn't be poking fun of it. Um, places, uh, and then they talk about their reputation, placing in the vanguard of the Russell Group. And um, we intend to expand our flagship access to scheme beyond the region and seeking to expand our progressive programs work with gifted and talented. So it's very much signaling that we're 
uh, a high, you know, high, highly selective institution, and we really want to work with the gifted and talented. And they didn't really feel the need to mention those in the, the previous one. This is an example of pre '92s. As I say, when we looked at the content uh, analysis, they weren't in some areas. They weren't they weren't engaged all that much, but they become more engaged. And this is an example. The, the red statement in both sides is, is where the exact same words are being used. So we started off in 2006 saying, as an ambitious education strategy, which aims to produce a world-class student experience, and so on. In 2012, this is foregrounded. So now saying the university's access agreement is founded on a two-fold commitment. Sustained enhancement of the education experience of our students, widening participation in higher education in general and to the city in particular. So then that kind of now comes ahead of the ambitious education strategy. So they're, they're actually now building up what they've actually been involved in widening participation since 1999, the point of making that before. And now it's more important to them to say it, say this. <coughs> so that whereas there wasn't much, Lotton didn't really have much of a track record in 2006, but they did, they didn't really mention it. <coughs> Pre-6, uh, uh, another institution. <coughs> Here they wanted to, on the, in 2006, they wanted to maintain and possibly encourage, increase the number of applications from, um, from good candidates and poorer background. Again, on the right, a much, much stiffer and more serious policy commitment to widening access. Uh, engagement is now one of the strategic priorities of our strategic plan. WP being a key tenet of engagement policy. Uh, and also, again, in the highlighted bit, they're building on the success of recent years. So there's a sense now that we are and have always been a kind of serious player in this area. Um, there's a couple on this. Which one to go for? Yeah, I'll go with this one. Pre free. This is going back to this idea of, of quality must be maintained high um, entry requirements to viable. So again, the red statements are well, it's exactly the same. It, it, difficult was being experienced by the state sector in student take up and teaching provision in a number of subjects, critical for entry in many of our high sector courses. They say the same thing there, but then they added on this section, which cites uh, Russell Group research, saying that of course a lower proportion of state um, sector students actually achieve these top grades, and they're less likely to apply. So it's almost kind of a a sort of defensive guard, if you like. Um, and just one little bit last bit before the, the last slide, if you give me an extra 30 seconds or so. Um, there was something that kept coming about civic, the civic role and civic virtue. And whereas in, in, on the left in 2006, pre-1960s we talk about being uh, in, the, in the region, uh, <laughs> you know, working in that sort of aim higher partnership and so on. Um, Later on, I think it's the one below that says it more, more clearly. A world-class civic university. They haven't actually said anything about their regional role in 2006, but by then they mentioned we're a world-class civic university demands of civil society as a civic university. Where's this word keep cropping up from? So pre-9 pre also mentions it. There's, again, the red bet, long-standing commitment to violent participation. It contributed to the regional aim higher initiative and it's part of the regional aim high initiative. That's something that we're quite happy to talk about in, in 2006. 
But now, because Aim Higher has since been abandoned, we've got um, the, this involvement in civic leadership, the foundation of the university is built on. We've got roots going back, uh, we were founded by penny donations. We're proud of our origins um, and the role it plays in the city and region, civic responsibility. So now we're getting a shift from United maybe talking about their leadership role as leaders of the local community. Whereas in 2006, when they were part of AIM Hire um, partnerships, which are mandatory after all, they had to play that partnership <coughs> in the collaborative game. Now they're actually saying, no, we are the kind of moral civic leaders, so a different role. So this <coughs> discourse shifts, I think, amongst pre teams, not that much really. The quality, excellence, and viability of entry requirements were there in 2006. And now they just say the same thing, but a bit more about how difficult it is to improve access. The regional role, we now see more of a shift towards civic virtue and responsibility. It's almost like we are the leaders of the, the, the area now. From international to global, <coughs> and we're from not much interest in access to actually talking about it. When they do benchmark, it's against other um, pre post nights is a bit more the institution to the individual focus shift, as I said before. Much more emphasis on retention and success, um, from being inflectional, flexible, vocational. Now it's all about professions. Um, widening out their focus for a group that is even more geographically wider and um, there's stuff there about bursaries which I didn't really go into but um, more support from merit aid. So content analysis suggested some convergence in outreach. The convergence means post-92 is moving closer to pre-92 as I would argue. Um, discourse analysis finds pretty much the same thing. It's the post-92 that making most of the moves here. Um, on, on retention of success, employability, broadening geographical investment. Pre-19 is less, less movement, they haven't, got, they haven't had to move very far. It was almost like the policy agenda is helping them uh, um, cement their role. But they both would talk about the challenge of how on earth we want participation in the new climate. So, in terms of how marketization is playing out, I mean, there's just some points to uh, Potentially <coughs> discussion. What's the um, first one really is about with the student number cap being off now? All these pressures that have, we've seen acting on post nineties to be, perhaps be less concerned about just being the local um, ex poly hoovering up anyone who wants to come to HE, but raising its entry requirements, trying to move up the league table, trying to become more quality. Well, that now that the uh, market's been opened up again, it's a new um, supply. Will, will that change? Will post teams maybe go back to being diverse and access friendly? HEIs in general, across both groups, are they abandoning diversity, vocations and work-based learning to the FE sector? Are we going to have a, also a, a sub-degree and the matures and part-time? Is all that gone for good? Because that's the direction of travel. Um, is our system becoming more or less differentiated? That's part of the assumption of a market is that there will be a spread, a distribution of types of provision and it should actually match up to price. But are we seeing more differentiation? Or well, with some of these posts not actually trying to raise their game, if you like, are we actually seeing less, become less differentiated? 
And possibly the last question, what does equity mean if the system is less diverse? Where does equity reside? Is it only in fair access to the most successful or the most desirable institutions? What about equity further down the, the distribution? I think that's it. Thank you.